start off, what I want to do is ask you to partner up one, twos, or threes at most, and just take one minute and discuss what comes to mind when you think of confrontation. What comes to your mind when you think of confrontation? So, discuss. I hope there's no confrontation if I cut you off there, but uh, I, let's just have two or three people yell out something that you guys had thought about. What's, what, what comes to mind? What feeling? What thought when you discuss confrontation? Brad? Fear. Fear. Yeah, sure. Argument. Argument. Opportunity for growth, of course. <laughs> You're a good confronter. Yes, yes. I paid Jeff to say that. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, typically, uh, 80%, 85%, maybe 90% of people that I know at least don't really like confrontation. And especially kind of in our culture in Bellingham, it's not, uh, it, it's kind of seen as uh, uncouth to, to create waves and confrontation well, unless it's on certain issues like, I don't know, gardening or something. But um, this evening we're going to look at a teaching from Jesus comes right out of his mouth that calls us to confront each other, and worse yet, he challenges us to confront one another on the socially untouchable issue of sin. Oh, how can this possibly have a good outcome? I know. Pray for me right now. Um, <laughs> okay, if you stick with me for 25 or 30 minutes, I think I can get us to a place where we're going to see how this can actually be good news. But first, as is almost always the case, context is going to help us tremendously with this teaching of Jesus. So if you're a guest with us this evening, uh, I don't want to say I'm sorry, because I'm not, but uh, it's not like I just decided, hey, I bet you, I think I want to preach on confrontation today. So that's not necessarily what kind of church we are. What we are doing is preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and so that means that we can't just skip over the teachings we don't like. And so this one is a little bit challenging. It's challenging for me as well, and we're just going to dive right into it. First of all, I want to talk about the context, because Jesus doesn't just pull this teaching on confrontation out of the blue. It comes right inside of another teaching, and it, it starts with what we talked about last week. Last week, I preached on Matthew 18, 1 through 14, and the gist of it is this. In that passage, Jesus' disciples ask him, hey, which one of us 12 are going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They're assuming that Jesus, who is the king, when he gets into his glory, into his kingdom, that they are going to be some important dudes in that kingdom because they're his 12 disciples, right? And so Jesus takes this moment to teach his misguided disciples a thing or two about greatness in the kingdom. And what he does is he grabs a child who's, I don't know, nearby, 
And the thing about children in the first century that we looked at last week is that they had no social status. They were powerless, voiceless, seen almost as subhuman. And I talked about even uh, the Greek words to describe children are often in the neuter. So you don't say a him or her, but an it until puberty almost. And that's how the writings are typically uh, given to us. So Jesus takes a child, someone with no status, and tells his disciples, unless you 12, and all of us, unless you become converted and become like little children, Don't worry about being greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You won't even be in the kingdom of heaven. And we talked about what that meant. And that what Jesus is saying is a child has no status of his or herself. That everything a child gets is received from a parent or someone greater. And that's how it is with disciples. We're to have a stance of humility toward God and to recognize that all good things come from Him, that we are His children. We don't earn our way into the kingdom. We don't earn brownie points with God. It doesn't work that way. That we are receivers and that He is the great gift giver. Jesus is saying, unless you recognize your powerlessness without God, your statusless without God, your honorlessness without God, unless you become humble, recognizing your childlike status before God, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. So here's what you should concern yourself with, being real. And being real means recognizing that I am a child of God, all right? Not God's equal, not his partner, okay? Now, a child is of infinite worth to God. The scriptures tell us all that. So you, as a child of God, are of infinite worth. Not because of your achievements, or because of your strength, or because of your worldly status, but because you're part of the family of God, and you bear his name, and you bear his honor. It's amazing. In the kingdom of heaven, in in the kingdom, the humble are the great ones. And the great ones, because they're humble, never lord it over other people. Jesus goes on to teach that these little ones in life, the people uh, without worldly status, uh, the underprivileged, the children, these are the special ones to God's heart. They have direct access to the Father. And woe to anyone who would trip them up or take advantage of them, make them stumble in their faith for some reason. So the stance of the type of person who follows Jesus and is part of his uh, kingdom is the person who walks with humility. The person who recognizes their utter dependency on Jesus, who's growing in the reality that because God created them, sustains them, died for them, and loves them, they, you, have infinite worth to God. That is the context That brings us to our passage tonight. I want to invite you to stand with me as we read Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, Take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, 
Let him be to you as a Gentile or a pagan and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall, be down, shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. The word of the Lord. Yeah, you may be seated. Well, from the very get-go, there's a little bit of a problem with the text as we have it. We have lots of different ancient manuscripts from the Gospels and all of the books of the Bible. And uh, we have fragments of Matthew's Gospel and we have whole complete versions of Matthew's Gospel. And some of these copies and variants have a line in them that says this, If your brother sin, sins against you, go and show him his fault in private. Okay? Some of the variants have that against you in them. But the oldest manuscripts simply say, If your brother sins... Period. Go show him his fault in private. The variant version limits this text to just if someone sins against you personally, go and tell them their fault. But the majority text, the most ancient text, the one we're going to go with tonight, is the one that says, if your brother sins, and you know about it, it's not even necessarily against you personally, go and show him his fault in private. It's controversial. Isn't that? I mean, that makes me feel uncomfortable. What makes it more controversial is that it's not a suggestion that Jesus says. It's a command. Jesus commands us to confront each other with our sin. Now, I can see all kinds of potential problems with this one. Can you see the church creating this secret uh, police of sin finders, sin sniffer outers, right? Uh, you could have people looking for an axe to grind and they're just looking with a critical eye. Who can I go confront on their sin? Kinds, has, I have, this, this thing has all kinds of potential for abuse. So why Jesus, knowing who we are and how <laughs> sinful we are in our hearts, why would he give us this command to confront one another? Simply put, I think that Jesus commands us to confront because he's commanding us to care. He's commanding us to love. He's commanding us to work for true shalom, for true peace, true reconciliation. By this definition, Jesus' command to confront one another is done for the good of the sinner and for the good of the community. First, confronting a brother or sister in their sin is an act of loving kindness. If sin leads to death, then confronting someone on their sin might just save their life, right? If you see one of your brothers or sisters going down a path of self-destruction and pain, the loving thing to do is to reach out and show them what you're seeing. Second, confronting a brother or sister 
uh, in their sin is good for the whole com- community. The reality is there are no private sins. There are sins that are done in private, but they always have a community out- outflow. There's a ripple effect that just can shred communities apart, shred families apart. Almost always your sin's going to get found out. It affects your heart, even if no one knows the outside things that you're doing. Your attitude, your heart will shift, and it will hurt people. Sometimes you might see a brother or sister mistreating somebody in the church or somebody out in the community. That confrontation is not isolated to just two individuals. Those two individuals have family members that they talk to and friendship circles that they talk to. And before you know it, there are divisions that can just shred and fracture a community. It's also an important distinction to know that Jesus is telling us to confront Christian brothers or sisters in their sin. He is not telling us to just go out into town to any old person and to say, hey, you know you're sinning? He does not give us that mandate to go into the world where people don't claim to follow Jesus and start to hold them to the standard of following Jesus. That's not what's going on here. That's a huge distinction. Are Are we clear on that? Not, yeah, okay. So this is about confronting brothers and sisters who have made a commitment already to follow Jesus. Now, years years ago, I heard uh, a story about a situation in a church that was difficult, painful, and had to do with confrontation. And in this church, um, we'll call her Maggie. Maggie was uh, the director of a preschool that happened to be held on church premises. Um, this is a true story. It didn't happen in this state, so don't try and get your mind working. Uh, we'll call her Maggie. Maggie also was the sister-in-law of the lead pastor of that church. So Maggie does her, um, her preschool thing. She's been there 15 years. She is beloved by the church community, but this preschool is also known throughout the local community. People love to send their kids there whether they were Christian or not. So she, it was this great outreach to the community. There's also an associate pastor there, and we'll call him Greg. And Greg used to go down a couple times a week and read with some of the students and just kind of be part of that community just to be a blessing. And one day, Greg started to notice some funny behavior in Maggie. She just wasn't quite tracking with conversations like she used to. And she would switch the subject frequently. And sometimes he would notice her eyes were watering. And then one day, he thought... I think I smell alcohol on Maggie's breath during work. It went on a few weeks. And he started to notice it more frequently. Now, Greg's 26 years old. It's his first pastoral position. And he suspects that the sister-in-law of the lead pastor might be drinking either before work or sometimes during work. What do you do? Discuss with a partner. Take one minute. Discuss with somebody next to you. What do you do? You're Greg. So I've heard... uh, I've heard some people saying, go to the senior pastor first. I've heard some people saying, go to Maggie first. Um, any, go to the police first out there. Any other ones besides that? No? 
right? All right? So we hear Jesus' command to confront. How do we do that in a way that communicates respect and the love of Jesus? Now, this is where the context is so important. It has to all start with humility. That's the context we saw earlier. Humility makes all the difference in the world because humility... And think outside, the, think outside the Greg and Maggie case study for a moment. Just think about any sin you might see a brother or sister doing. Humility means that you are not going to confront them out of an attitude of revenge. You're not going to confront them out of an attitude of self-righteousness. You're not going to confront a person in order to punish them or humiliate them. Humility means... You're going to take seriously the balancing scripture that Jesus preaches in Matthew chapter 7. Do not judge. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother or your sister's eye? And you don't even notice the log in your own eye. How can you say, hey, take the speck out of your eye? When behold, there is a freaking log in your own eye. First take the log out of your own eye, and then maybe you'll see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, you and I are fellow sinners. I'm no better than you. You're no better than me. You and I lack perspective, right? Because we've got stuff in our eye all the time. The reason we are going to confront is not because we're better, not because our eyes are clear of sawdust and logs. We are going to correct and to, to um, confront a brother or sister because and only because Jesus commands it. And because it's good for our brother or sister and because it's best for our community. Here's another thing that I just want to be clear about. Jesus is not calling us to judge a brother or sister. Judgment is always God's prerogative. It's his job. He's the judge. Judgment is final. It's making a final statement about someone. We don't make final judgments. What we're called to do is to gently and humbly show our brother or sister their sin. We don't declare, you sinner. We say, hey, from my perspective, this is what I see going on. What do you think about this? It's a revelation. It's a revealing. It's done humbly. Okay? And that's the first step. How do we do this? We do it humbly, which we've just talked about. But the second thing is we do it prayerfully. We discern if this is a sin that Jesus wants us to confront. Because let's face it, who here doesn't sin on a regular basis? You know, you can make a case like somebody... You talk to someone and they give you some snarky answer or they're just kind of mean. You could say, they're not encouraging me in the Lord. I'd better say something. You, you, you're, you know, really? Like you just kind of have to say, maybe they're having a bad day. Or maybe this is the type of person who does this all the time to you and to other people and is actually damaging relationships. You know, you might want to then pray about, do I take this to that person or not? I mean, otherwise, we're just nitpicking everything, and that's not a very fun environment to be in, right? You have to decide. 
Is that person hurting themselves? Are they hurting someone else? Are they pushing people away from Christ? If you want to know what to confront people on, you could always start with the Bible, Sermon on the Mount, Ten Commandments, the Great Commandments. Those would all be great places to start. Is the person going down the road of addiction or adultery? Are they lying? Are they being judgmental? Are they not following through on their commitments? I mean, those are pretty clear things that are confrontable. So, to sum that up, we confront humbly, and we confront prayerfully and biblically, right? And the third thing is we always confront, and this could very well be the first thing, we always confront out of hope for reconciliation. We confront because we hope the person would repent and make amends and ask for forgiveness and be restored to community. That's why you do it. Not for ulterior motives or to get back at somebody. You know, being part of the church, the community of God, the family of God, the people of God, however you want to say that, it's part of what it means to be saved. Salvation, as I've often said, is personal, but it's not private. That's because we are not just saved in like a vacuum where no one else is present. We are saved into a community of Christ. And you know what happens in families? Siblings fight, don't they? Siblings fight, and they hurt each other. And the difference between a healthy family and a dysfunctional family isn't that there's never fighting. It's that... After the fights in a healthy family, people reconcile. And they say, I'm sorry. And they forgive and receive forgiveness. That's, that's what we want to be as a healthy family. We confront people with their sin because sin hurts them and it hurts the community, which is the family. And the whole process is done in humility and hope for restoration. And it should be done always in a way that protects the other's dignity. Okay? So in the case study, uh, well, I, let me just skip that for a minute. This is exactly why when Jesus says, if you see a brother or sister in sin, confront them in private. This is not, huh, I'm going go to I'm go tell my small group about this and get their advice about this, what I should do about this person. Okay? Because then what you've done is you've basically taken a person's name and you've changed the opinions of whoever's in your small group about that person. You've changed their... They cannot help it now. It's like when an attorney knows that something's going to get thrown out on conjecture or whatever, but they say it anyway because they know it's going to taint the jury's mind, even if it's thrown out technically. All right. So, I mean, one way around that is you could say, hey, I've got this problem and use a generic name if, as long as the people aren't going to figure it out. But you keep it private to protect the other person's dignity. So in the case study we've been talking about, Greg walked into his office deeply disturbed at the thought that Maggie may have been drinking on the job. Not only was she drinking during the workday, but she's in charge of multiple staff and dozens of children while she's doing it. She's representing the church to the community. Serious problem. Greg prayed about it. And since this is a true story, I'm not going to give you like the, the shiny best case scenario. What actually happened, right or wrong, is that Greg thought I should pray about this, and he slept on it that night. 
The next day he comes to work, convinced he should confront Maggie. So he waits till afternoon nap time. All the kids are down. The staff members are all doing their things to get ready for when the kids wake up. He asks, Maggie, can I talk to you? He said, I could be way off on this. But I think my experience with you has been, you've been acting strange, and I think I've smelled alcohol in your breath in the last couple days. And at first she was really sweet and said, oh, you've noticed I haven't been feeling well, and I just had some mouthwash when you came downstairs the other day. Listerine, kind of high alcohol. He said, really, are you telling me everything? And when he pressed a little further, she got defensive, denied everything, said she didn't want to talk about it anymore. It did not go well. Greg felt uncomfortable. I'm sure Maggie felt uncomfortable. And there was no resolution to the problem. Jesus said, if they do not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Now, this is a critical moment in the uh, process of reconciliation. This is the moment where things can go really well or terribly wrong. Because whenever you have the courage, and don't kid yourself, it takes great courage to confront someone privately. Whenever you put yourself out there and you're spurned like Greg was... You're probably going to be hurt. You could get defensive. You could get angry. And none of those feelings, none of those attitudes lend themselves then to being humble and loving. And the tendency is to want to go drum up support for your case. Go find one or two people, Jesus says. I know who I'm asking. The one or two people who are always on my side, who aren't going to be objective. And who are going to corner this person. That is not love. The loving thing to do is to find two people, one or two people who you trust, but who you also trust who would tell it to you straight if you're off in this situation. I don't know who that is in your life. Maybe an objective person might be uh, a pastor, unless I'm the one you're confronting, right? Um, maybe someone on the leadership team. Uh, those are good places to start. You could, you could go there and get a couple people, um, but try and be objective. In Greg's case, it was a little bit different because he is responsible for the church being in the pastor. He goes to the lead pastor. He thought it would be the right thing to do to inform the pastor of the church since the preschool represented the church. And at first, the pastor couldn't believe it. There's no way my sister-in-law, who's been doing this job for 15 years, has a problem. No way. The pastor even went down that very moment, had a, had a small talk visit with Maggie just to see if anything was up. And he didn't detect anything and everything was fine. But the next day, after talking to Maggie in the morning... Greg could tell she's been drinking again. He grabbed the lead pastor and said, listen, now's the time you need to talk to her. And the lead pastor confronted her and she got mad and said, vehemently, there's no problem with me. He said, would you be willing to submit to a breathalyzer test? So passionate was her denial. Absolutely, I would take 10 breathalyzer tests right now. Not thinking anything would happen. The two pastors went upstairs, and 20 minutes later, a police officer walked in. She blew three times the legal limit. I'll tell you what happened in a minute. 
But what happens to a person who doesn't listen to the group of one or two or three others? Jesus says you should then tell the matter to the church. Now, I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means you tell it to the whole church. Like, what do you do if you're a Christ the King and you got 3,000 people? Do you really, like, call, I, I don't know. I, I think logistically, um, maybe you do it at a congregational meeting or you do it to the lead team or somebody who represents the church. I don't know how all that looks. But you tell a larger group of people, always out of the hope of restoration for this brother or sister. And if that doesn't work, then and only then are you to treat that person as a pagan or a tax collector. That means treat that person as if they are not following Jesus. And that means two very specific things. It means treat them as someone who's not following Jesus, someone who then should not be in leadership of spiritual things at church, someone who then should not uh, in good conscience be taking communion. But second, and equally important, is to remember how Jesus treated pagans and tax collectors. He was always hanging out with them and always calling them to repentance and telling them the good news and trying to win them to himself. At Bible study Wednesday night, Collins reminded us that Matthew, Levi, the one who writes this very gospel, was a tax collector himself. Until Jesus came and said, follow me. And Matthew made a choice to give up that corrupt profession and way of life and to follow Jesus. Now, in the case of Maggie and Greg, it never had to get this far. After the sobering reality that she had to be removed from the premises, Maggie confessed her problem and got help. And after a few months, she actually wrote letters to the pastor and the, and the uh, associate pastor and thanked them for helping be the first steps on the road to recovery. Okay, how are we doing? I feel like, I mean, this is just plain and simple. This is a heavy, a heavy text. I'm glad we're not skipping over it because it was important enough for Jesus to teach and important enough for Matthew to think he needed to give to us the church, right? And in preparing for this message, I mean, I'm just so aware uh, that in many ways a teaching like this ruffles our feathers and you know, cuts against the grain of our cultural norms and our comfort zones. And I've tried to point out that the reason we confront is out of love and that the way we confront is out of humility. And together we've, we've looked at a case study, we've explored how we guard each other's dignity by going alone in private and then as a smaller group and only as a last resort as the church. And let's face it, I mean, that is a messy command Jesus calls us to get engaged in. Jesus commands us to engage in the messiness and sin of reconciliation. Or not, the messiness of sin and reconciliation. Reconciliation is not a sin. Yeah, just want to clarify that. But here's the good news. The same Jesus who commands us to confront and care doesn't just make this command from some safe place far removed from earth from a throne. Jesus is the one who became flesh and dwelt among us 
And he actually moved into the fray of human sin and human corruption. And he himself was betrayed. He confronted sin head on. You did not want to be a demon in Jesus' day. Get out. Cast him out. I mean, when evil was in his face, it did not stand. He confronted the self-righteous religious teachers boldly. And always was trying to teach them along the way. And he attracted repentant sinners with his love. The same Jesus who said, He who is without sin cast the first stone on the one hand is the same Jesus who says, Go and sin no more. Jesus confronted our sin by laying his life down for us. Confronting sin so that you and I could be reconciled to the Father. And now he's called.